Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Grumpy Collector Podcast. I'm your host, Troy McHenry, an incurable collector of all things. On this week's episode, we have our first interview. I first heard of Olivia Briggs through Grand Seiko's GS9 Club's newsletter. We talk about just a few of the things she collects and is passionate about. There's a lot of watch talk, but we also talk about Japanese lacquer, the idea of intentionality, fountain pens, the food and coffee scene in New York City, and her love for custom keyboards and keycap sets. She's even designed some of her own custom keycap sets under the moniker Olivia++. The show notes for this one are epic and are live right now, so feel free to check them out at thegrumpycollector.com. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show on your streaming platform of choice and give us a five-star review. It really does make a difference. And without further ado, yeah, your life just got better. For my first guest, too, is like, I don't want to just do something that's just watches, even though I love watches so much. But, you know, I think a lot of us have a lot of other hobbies and things. It seems like you do, too. So I think this will be a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you being so uh, gracious and and generous with your, your time. No, I look forward to it. It's it's always nice, I think, to have conversations with other people that enjoy the things that you do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, when I'm at work, uh, I'm in um, healthcare, and no one has the same hobby as I have, and so it, <laughs> it just falls on deaf ears. Like if I want to talk fine dining, espresso, uh-huh. Uh-huh. watches, it all f- falls on deaf ears. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. (laughs) I think working in tech, um, there's probably a split, but it seems like a lot of at least software people can't really or measure things from a quantitative basis. So it's very difficult, I think, to explain, I think, the beauty of mechanical watches and calibers and sort of the differences when they when they sort of look at it and say, hey, there's this thing. And it's way worse than quartz has ever been. Why would we be interested in switching back to that in the first place? <laughs> yeah, and I think tech, like, there's not a lot of, like, wabi-sabi in, in tech, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. That was something also really interesting. I was talking to someone about this. Um, but, yeah, I think it's very rare to have something that lasts for so long and is really designed to in that sense. Yeah, to I, sort of like be this generational item. I, I'm not handing down to my kids like my original like iPhone. <laughs> like For it won't sure. work, right? <laughs> but I can hand yeah. down to them like you know my Grand Seiko or Rolex or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, let me start with. I wanted to tell listeners that you know I first heard about you from Grand Seiko's GS9 newsletter, and you were kind of in the inaugural Chronicle Nine. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what uh, resonated uh, with me from that profile piece was one. I'm also a huge fan of the book uh, Design of Everyday Things. Um, I I had to pull mine from the the bookcase and mine's from 1990. But I think I bought it used. I don't think I was reading it that far back. Wow. (laughs) But it's a killer book. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think I read it in university. Um, I think it was a PDF 
because I didn't think at that time I could sort of afford to purchase one of those like really nice hardcover versions. Now I just have way too many hardcover books. They're just all over the apartment. Um, but I don't know, just it, it really helps you see in a different way. Um, I would say like the, the commonality of things, I think tends to sort of make your brain appreciate them less. Uh, mm. but you end up learning, I think through that book, like all the thought and sort of the philosophy of what powers it behind and sort of how people think about people using things. Um, it's, it's very interesting because one can like look at something like the Mona Lisa, for example, because it's a very singular thing and this, it's very unique, I guess, in this representation. And they can see like a lot of complexity and beauty in that. But then like someone can look at like a doorknob, for example, <laughs> and sort of gloss over, I think, a lot of the attributes as well, regardless of how much effort or time has gone into it as well. For sure. You know, I think of, um, you know, like if you're ever going in or out of an office building, if like the doors aren't hinged right, like you immediately yep. know something's off, yep. right? And that book was like the first time I ever heard someone like write about that. I'm like, yes, that happens to all mm -hmm. of us. And so many of us just, I think it's almost like you're in two camps. Some people like know like it's not working right, but they can't consciously realize it. And then there's some of us who like realize and we're like, this is stupid. This needs to be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I guess I would be like internally or externally blaming your problems, I think. Because um, <laughs> like, yeah, there is, it's very much like, or like, I would say like experience. I, I work in the more UI UX standpoint of software. So I'd actually, I think about this a lot, but the experience sort of is a shortcut to the learnings that your brain already has. And from there, you it's your, I think reactions become a lot more automatic. And that's usually in a good way because it sort of shortens the cognitive load in a sense. But yeah, for things like doors, right? Like it's very easy to, I think, to sort of fall into that pattern where you end up pushing or pulling the wrong way just because for your brain, your pattern matching to all the other doors you've used in the past. And it's sort of just like, if you thought about it, perhaps, like you may have noticed other signs, but like doors are designed also in that way to sort of be very self-explanatory. Yeah, when they're designed right, they are. <laughs> mm, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of another great book I love, which is, um, oh, I forget the gentleman's name. I wanna say it's like Jacob Nielsen, the, the web usability. I just love, it's a really simple book on, mm -hmm. on uh, you, you know, just because in part of that, what I love, it, there's like a line in there he talks about, he's like, when you're designing a website, you have to design knowing that everyone's going to spend 99% of their time on, on other websites. It's like, you almost have to take that into account of like what people are used to elsewhere. If you create yours, that's so different. People will find right. it hard to use. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And like, I think in a similar vein, a long time ago, I remember reading a book about designing web forms, which sounds super dry. Um, but at the same time, it was, it was very much, I think, trying to be conscious of the audience and 
the fact that people people might be filling out these like forms like really late in the dark and they might like not be wearing their glasses and things might be a little blurry so trying to like rely on like a very 100% focused view of anything is sort of a pattern to set you up for a lot of failure uh in that way yeah i could definitely see that mm -hmm. um also the, another reason i wanted to have you on is we both have uh the spring shunbun grand seiko right the sb yeah. tv 430 how how gorgeous is that watch wow that was it's still a gorgeous watch to this day um it's the first grand seiko i ever got um i got it as a christmas present for my husband uh, because I think at that time I decided that I was building that interest in mechanical watches and I'd done a bunch of research and I sort of fell in love just based on the website pictures um, of that dial. But going to the boutique and actually holding my hands and seeing the light play with it and like there's a lot of subtlety, um, I would say, to it as well. It It's just like a very singular, I think, piece of design that really is almost flawless, I would say. I, I, I used to like wear it whenever I was working just because it would remind me or like every time like things were like 90% there or 85% there. <laughs> um, and like you could put in the last 10%, but it was a lot of work. Yeah, I would sort of look at the watch and like remind myself that someone actually did <laughs> like pretty much go to that 100%. And if they could do it, I could also do it. <laughs> now, is this also maybe the first watch you've really experienced that's in titanium? Yeah, that's a good question. I think actually no. Um, my uncle got me a Tiso T-Touch um way back when yeah when i was i think a teenager uh and i remember that watch being titanium but it was also like shocking because it was so light um i remember and it it didn't feel like like a classic quintessential watch and like sort of i think there is a natural association with heaviness as well with sort of how valuable something is um but it's such a great watch because unlike other watches, I think titanium is a lot harder to scratch. And um, because of that, it looks a lot more flawless than for example, um, one of my Rolexes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And like, just I'm, I'm holding mine right now in my hand and like just mm -hmm. how they do like the, that like chamfer on the side that kind of curves, but doesn't break up and it's highly polished. It's just, um, yeah. It, and I saw in the article that yours was on a really lovely strap. You'd taken it maybe off the bracelet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I really liked the pink dial. Uh, and I sort of struggled to find something with the, was it 21 millimeters or 20 millimeters? Yeah, I think it's, it's 21. Like, it's an odd size. Yeah, it's a really odd size for a watch bracelet. So I went through a whole bunch of uh, different looks uh, to sort of find that really nice pink. Uh, I actually ended up switching over finally to a Jean Rousseau strap because nice. I found out that there was sort of a store uh, in New York that would actually, I went to and was able to sort of choose uh, like the specific strip of alligator <laughs> uh, that I wanted to be on that strap and sort of have everything like uh, sort of made perfectly the way I wanted it. 
but yeah, I think the leather is a lot more comfortable, at least for myself. And I feel like, especially with the complexity of the dial, um, sort of removing the bracelet focuses more of the attention also uh, onto the dial, which I think is the way I'd like to present it in general. So yeah, I, I really enjoy having a strap on that. And it's, I think it really changes uh, the tone that it sort of puts out. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about that. Do you have it on the bracelet still? It, uh, funny you say that it's on the bracelet right now, but I mm -hmm. traditionally do wear it on a strap and I uh, have it on a really pretty um, navy deluxe strap um, uh, and with the uh, pink stitching. And it, it's amazing when I put it on this like kind of flat navy, the dial looks so much more pink. Whereas when it's on the titanium, like my wife will look at it and she was like, oh, it just looks silver dial to me. I don't see any pink. Right? I'm like, no, 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 just, just go in the light or go outside mm -hmm. and it totally changes. Yeah, yeah. It the mind really fills in uh, what the eyes see. I would say <laughs> it's weird like that, but yeah, I, I have a my husband. He actually wears the blue watch in that article. Um, I'm struggling to figure out the name. It's the zero zero seven, probably SBGK or something. Yeah, the the, uh, the, the pale blue one. Yeah, the pale blue one. Yeah, SBGY007. Uh, That's a great watch. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great watch. Um, and it's interesting because he doesn't appreciate watches uh, to the degree that I do as well. He thinks this is like a nice looking watch. Sure. Um, but like, <laughs> it's interesting the ways we perceive that from like, we appreciate very different details. I think he appreciates the thinness, but I really appreciate sort of the dial shape, um, like the lugs, mm. uh, even the strap itself, like Grand Seiko really knows how to make really soft feeling alligator straps. Um, a lot of other places seem to have it a lot more stiff when yeah. initially getting it. So I always appreciate that as well. Awesome. I really appreciate I, I never like, knew the lushness of that. I've, I don't think I've ever handled a Grand Seiko with uh, an alligator oh. strap before. Uh, um, my Great Beast came on a, a fabric strap, which actually I've never put on that watch because I, I, I just looks horrid <laughs> to me and cheap. And then uh -huh. the, the pink dye I bought my wife and mine or both came on bracelet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would, if you're near a boutique, I would, I would totally try it out. It, yeah. it feels, that. it feels like butter. It's like really, it's really soft, really nice. Now I got to ask just cause we're on the topic with, um, our, our spring. Um, yeah. watches. What is your opinion on the power reserve on the dial? Because it's a very controversial feature for yeah. watch collectors. And I know people who love the idea of Grand Seiko. They love the idea of spring drive. But when they see that power reserve off-centered on the bottom left, they're like, I'm out, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I thought that was really cool. Because um, I think in the past before I like really got into watches, I hadn't seen too many watches that sort of have that power reserve on there. So I thought like, okay, that's, I'm willing to sort of make that adjustment. And at the same time, I think they sort of present it in a very elegant way. Uh, like that sort of nice folded fan uh, with the, is it a blued, a blued steel? It uh, depends hand? on the it's model. A, Ours, it's just, uh silver 
Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I was... There's a... Is it a Ginza? There's a Ginza edition yes. uh, that's sort of similar in tone. And, like, that has an amazing uh, power reserve dial. But, yeah, in general, I think I've sort of migrated over time to simpler, like, more sparse-looking dials. Uh, but the power reserve of it doesn't really bother me uh, whatsoever. I think it just sort of adds to the charm almost. The one thing I don't actually like, which I haven't heard as many people talk about, is the font on the date wheel. Mm. I really don't like how wide the single digits are. Uh, it sort of drives me crazy. <laughs> it's funny, mine is, uh, the date is set just to nine right now. Because <laughs> uh -huh, I haven't worn right. it in a few days. And it is a very wide yeah. nine, yeah. Yeah. I was looking at a, another watch they have, and like they they changed the font for that one. I think it's one of the thirty four millimeters or thirty five millimeters, um, and it's I don't know. It it sort of appeals, I think, uh, to a more Helvetica esque perhaps uh, font that I'm sort of used to. I don't. This the squarey, uh, like super wide numeral, sort of clashes in a way with my expectations of like Graham Seiko's like design philosophy. And I know there's a like they're very angular in general, um, and they sort of like to to work in that space. But with like the lugs and like the case shape being very rounded, I feel like it sort of interferes. Uh, with sort of the design language spoken by those features. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, looking at mm -hmm. this nine, it, it almost looks like the, if you're familiar with FP Journ watches, it's actually yeah. like, it kind of looks like that same topography a bit in my mind, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. is maybe a little bit clashing with, with the watch. <laughs> yeah, so, perhaps. So tell me a little bit about yourself, um, just so people can kind of get to know uh, Olivia. Where did you mm -hmm. grow up? Yeah, so I am originally Canadian. I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I moved after university to New York. Uh, Toronto very much feels like a, a very small um, version of New York in some ways. And I think just having a chance to intern uh, in this location sort of made me fall in love with the city. I'm still for the most part, really in love with it. I've been here for now 10 years, which is wild. But yeah, I think it's it's always interesting because there's a lot of similarities, I think, between Canadians and Americans. So as long as I don't say the wrong word, uh, <laughs> I can usually pass for a good American. If you don't start switching to like um, Celsius or metric, right? You know, that's how I, yeah, I know it's a dead exactly. giveaway for me with Canucks. Yeah, man, I got... I got really bad at, at temperatures these days because I swapped over to Fahrenheit for a while and then like I swapped back to Celsius and now I'm just confused about the, the two things. <laughs> like I, I remember that 70 to 75 is a good temperature, uh, but when it comes to Celsius and like the other, the other ranges, my mind kind of goes haywire a little bit. Do you see yourself ever moving back to Canada? Um... think so. Uh, I think there's, especially when it comes to the, 
the more international brands. I think their presence in Canada and for for a lot of brands, I think is a lot less uh, invested in. And I think that also makes it really hard uh, to sort of stay like adrift or like afloat uh, with all the new releases coming out. And I don't know, the food scene in New York is a lot more diverse yeah. than in Canada as well. And I'm very much into food. And oh, actually the espresso uh, scene has gotten better in Toronto. I like no one good place. <laughs> but at the time, like their their coffee scene really sucked as well. Uh, so there was a lot of things going against Canada. But perhaps if they sort of like rise uh, in sort of the hobbies that I really like and feeling to those kind of tastes, I would probably consider it. But the temperature even is just completely awful. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you're right. you're definitely spoiled being in in yeah, New York. I think, with, with with food and, and coffee and mm-hmm. culture. I think mm-hmm. this is a um, a current debate in our household. My wife is from Hungary, and uh, every couple of years she'll be like, "Don't you? How about we just move to Hungary? Move back? You know, move to Budapest, and you could uh-huh. easily find a job, Troy." And I tell him like, "Well, I tell you what, the, the compromise is uh, maybe we can retire there." Um, you know, mm. convert our dollars into forints and live like kings. But um, yeah, there's there's definitely pros and cons. Yeah, I have to say, like retiring, I would definitely consider other countries. Um, I really like Asia, uh, and there's like a lot of different areas which have a much lower cost of living, uh, and still has like this amazing uh, food scene, as far as I can tell. And then like. I think it sort of works out to like where if you don't travel that much, uh, you end up having like huge savings. So I, I would be very curious to sort of like explore moving to Asia at some point. Uh, my grandma's in Hong Kong right now. Okay. And like Hong Kong definitely is a very expensive area yeah. for the most part. <laughs> for sure. So I probably wouldn't move there. Um, but there's a lot of places in close proximity. Uh, that sort of would be very curious to, to explore. But first, I'd have to like actually learn some languages. I'm very monolingual uh, as it goes. Yeah, and I feel like Asia's definitely like pockets there. English is just not very common. Like I hear mm-hmm. as an American, it would be hard maybe to visit, you know, large swaths of Japan for, the, for that reason. Yeah, seriously. Um, I, I on and off try and learn Japan, Japanese. And I really, I seem to be one of the few people in my friend group and social group that hasn't been there. Um, so in the meantime, I'm sort of preparing for that. I was supposed to go, of course, uh, during the first year of COVID and that obviously didn't work out. So perhaps I was hoping 2022 would be the year, but it probably will be more like 2023 or 2024, um, regardless. Very cool. I, yeah, I feel like there's just a part of my soul that's Japanese too. And right? there's there's a great book. Oh, I can't remember now. Jack Forrester actually mentioned it once, like The Shadow of Something. And I bought it and huh. read it. And it's great. And it's so interesting because in it, it's almost like this old grumpy Japanese guy talking about design and a little bit of materiality of, of materials. And mm. he talks about, it's so funny because here, I feel like as an American, like, I feel like incredible warmth with like the pottery and ceramics I have in our home. And there right. he's like saying, Oh, it's cold. It's lifeless. Cause he's all, cause to him, what's warm and inviting is, is lacquer. 
you know, like lacquer yeah, wood. So it's a whole nother level mm-hmm. of, of warmth that to us, well, I'm like, well, I'm comparing this East Fork ceramic mug to maybe a, something made out of glass, but to them, they have right. a whole different scale. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I've heard a lot of people describe like Ebonite and like the Arushi lacquer. I think Nakaya and Namaki and Platinum. I think are pretty famous in Japan for having their Arushi pens mm. and like to the touch, like they do feel, they feel a lot more organic, which is weird. Um, cause for the most part, they're usually like bodies of plastic or ebonite or, uh, brass underneath. But yeah, the, the lacquer sort of like adds another layer of warmth almost to it. It's, it's a really interesting, I think, tactile, uh, feeling. Sure. And I'm curious, like, where did you develop kind of this sense of appreciation? It's, it's, it's almost like it's a step above style, right? Like, what, what did your parents do? Like, do you feel like you got any of this from them? Or is this just all from your media mm. diet or from your own education that, you know, or your own intrinsic interests? Yeah, I think my parents are accountants. Uh, <laughs> That's so... awesome. They're very nice people. I can't say that I've imported most of my uh, tastes from them, unfortunately. But I think as a as like a kid with a, growing up in an Asian family, my mom's Chinese, my dad's uh, Western. Uh, it's pretty common not to have a uh, see. I can't even remember the name allowance mm. uh, growing up. So I kind of learned to sort of use the internet as a proxy to sort of explore and like find new things and sort of like I ended up making lots of lists of things that once I have have like the funds for I would eventually purchase and I think just the internet at that time gave me a lot of things to explore and sort of develop that sense of taste and style and all that but yeah it's it's interesting how these things sort of develop uh, it's just like a smattering of like random points of time where you have something that's really life changing. I think, for example, like a friend in New York, when I was interning here, uh, we went on a day of like trying different coffees. Cause I told her I really liked espresso. Mm. And at the time, like I was guiltily, I liked Starbucks. Uh, and I thought that was a taste of good espresso, like that burnt, you know, charred, <laughs> yeah. super bitter taste that like burns into your throat. I thought that's what it tasted like, which is why I sort of have like a lot of resentment towards that brand to this day. Um, but they led you astray. Exactly. They led me astray, but she took me to a bunch of places. I remember it tasting very different. Uh, and it wasn't until I went back to Canada in university I started like missing that taste and that sort of made me obsessively start like looking more into espresso and like how it sort of developed and all of these things but it turns it tends to be like when you talk to people that are very uh, obsessed with very certain things they also tend to have that spider web of interest uh to your point like there's there's more than just like watches or keyboards or uh, pens, but like there's, there's espresso, for example, I'm sure there's like the, the wine, the wine world, for example, is like huge and whiskeys and all that stuff. But I think we as humans tend to, 
to really like sort of expanding uh, that world and like just trying to find like the best of it almost. Yeah, I think it's very it's, interesting, like phenomenon. Yeah, it's like a personality thing, right? Like, are you know, my my slogan is curate everything because, mm. which is kind of a luxury, I know. But you know, I think there's some people I know that when they need a broom, they're like, okay, I'm going to go to Target, I'm going to buy a broom, or go to Lowe's, and I'm done. And there's others of us who are like, oh no, this is like a fun research project. Right. Let me let me spend 20 minutes on Google and figure out like what's the best Swedish artisan broom that you know. I can find and use and it will be an heirloom and it will never let me down and sure. using it will be a joy. And you know, why not do that with everything? <laughs> maybe we, yeah. maybe we just have too much free time. I don't know. <laughs> I think so. And like that, that actually triggers a memory in me. Like I remember growing up when my parents wanted to like buy like an electronic, like a printer, I would obsessively research um, like for hours and hours and try and find the best thing. Like every time they tasked me trying to find something, I would like, very much try and look and look and eventually end up with the right like the perfect uh thing so i think i always i always wanted uh sort of like a very curated uh collection of things around me because i don't know like that extra amount of care really makes the world of difference um i had the opportunity to go to the wire cutter offices which are in queens uh, a couple of years ago, and I feel like that was really interesting. Oh, I bet. Because uh, they just, they just have a bunch of like these decorated like fake rooms uh, where they sort of have <laughs> the items like living in those spots. I guess for photos and also just for testing. Uh, but I like, I would have totally, I think, worked for those people at some point in my life because I love, I love like what they represent and I love the things that come out of their testing. Um, I think it very much speaks to the things that I love. Yeah, I feel like I'm wired where if I see like a new product offering, let's say from some brand, it could be anything, and they come out with like 10 different models, all tiered. Let's say it's like televisions or something. I love mm -hmm. comparing the features to the price and figure out like where's that inflection point where like you're getting the, the most features for the best price, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's just very, very interesting. And then I know you spoke a little bit about kind of obviously you're, what you're living in New York City, I assume, one of the boroughs. You're a, a software engineer, is that right? That is right. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. I, I work at a pretty big company, um, which is nice. I, I think I've worked at startups. I worked at a lot of smaller companies, and this is the first time I've been at a huge company. Um, and I would say it's really interesting because you end up having a lot of chats with people all over the world, in fact, and sort of getting that experience and hearing, hearing like all of these backgrounds is just, is just really curious um, and really, really enjoyable to sort of take a part of. Of course, like the big company bureaucratic stuff is not super fun. Uh, but at the same time, like having that reach, uh, really lets you end up experiencing lots of interesting things. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, I've never worked for a startup. I've always worked for large companies like GE and, mm -hmm. um, and, and financial services. And I feel like there it was nice. Cause yeah, you kind of had a safety net. Like I didn't have to worry right. about my paycheck coming. 
and there was enough people doing things like I could focus on my little slice. But I have to say, I think a startup would be cool because depending on like how big the startup is, like you kind of have to flex and just fill whatever role maybe is needed at the time. Is that your experience? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was at the startup that I worked at, I was the first employee at the time. And it very much, I was very much used to a very different pace of work. Uh, and very much, I think, a division of responsibility uh, when it comes to product development. And from there, it was like me, the CTO, the CEO, and the designer. Uh, and half of them were in SF. Mm -hmm. And very much like it was, we want to do this thing. Let's all just work together and, and get it done as quickly as possible. So it was like really fast iteration cycles a lot of wearing different hats. It was, it's really fun. I think as long as like you're in the beginning of like the funding cycles and you have plenty <laughs> of money to burn. Uh, I think as it gets closer to the red line, it starts getting a lot more anxiety inducing. I was going to say, it sounds very stressful to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think towards the end, it got very stressful. Um, unfortunately they ended up running out of money. Or like getting close to running out of money, so they decided to sort of go their separate ways. Oh wow! Um, but it was still like a very unique and awesome experience, and I think it definitely helped me sort of understand uh, the things that I personally really care about, the things that bring me energy, uh, and it was it was a very unique experience. I would definitely would recommend the experience to anyone who's ever interested. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So now thinking of you as a collector, I was, I kind of wanted to start with, because I always think this is an interesting question. It's like, can you remember the first thing maybe you really started collecting or thinking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about this morning. Um, I sort of remember a couple things being really something I was very curious about. I think McDonald's at that time. Uh, my brother used to really like the the pizzas when McDonald's used to serve pizza. Uh, that must have been a Canadian they, thing. I don't think they ever. It had must pizzas have been a Canadian here. thing. <laughs> yeah, they had like these like eight inch like they called them personal pizzas, um, and like they were just like sized for like one child, um, and yeah, the the Happy Meals that would always go with it. I would always like take the toys, um, and even at that time, like McDonald's was very into like setting up schemes where kids end up begging their parents to get them more happy meals <laughs> just so they could get those toys. But yeah, I, I remember there was a whole cacophony of like from TV shows, you'd have to collect all the characters uh -huh. um, or from like book series, you'd have to do that. Uh, I remember as growing up as a 90s kid, Pog. Pogs, was oh, it Pogs? Yeah. Yeah. Pogs, yeah. Pogs and Crazy Bones were like the thing for a while that I was really, that I saw everyone getting really into. And of course, like, I think Pokemon um, was like the, the genuine obsession uh, for a while. Everyone was obsessed with Pokemon uh, for quite some time. And I remember I just had like a single, like chancy card that I assume is still somewhere in a drawer somewhere. And like, yeah, I, I've, it was really interesting, like having that experience of collecting and sort of salivating over things that you could possibly never get uh, ever and just not available um, and sort of having to 
to understand like the steps you need to take to be able to get to that point where you're able to acquire it. Um, yeah, I think definitely Pokemon has has shaped <laughs> some of my collecting <laughs> philosophy, which is weird to say. Well, I have to say, I I have two boys that are teenagers and uh, mm -hmm. and, and they collect Pokemon. They they just right. both kind of stopped recently, but it's amazing that's been still a thing and. Uh, I'm dating myself a bit, but I was never into Pokemon, but I was very into Magic the Gathering. Um, right. You could play with it, but then the cards, some of them were like super rare or super expensive. And But it's interesting because I feel like that's also like where you see like the first like playground like flexing, you know, when someone yeah, comes in yeah, and is like, I oh, that. <laughs> right, I have this special metallic Pokemon card or oh. something that you don't have and you can't mm -hmm. get. You're just like, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um, especially like now that like you have a bunch of these YouTube millionaires paying crazy money for these really old cards. Uh, it's like wild to see the things that you're flexing on the playground with <laughs> sort of <laughs> turn into this huge other like investing instrument. It's very, it's very surreal. Yeah, I but, agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's like two camps. Either people are still trying to get that nostalgia and buying those old things when they were kids and, and couldn't afford. Like, it's so interesting mm -hmm. that people want these old Air Jordans, you know? Right. Um, that were or the Reebok pumps. Like, I remember having a pair of those. And then, uh, or people just gravitate or switch to, okay, watches or cars or what's the, the grown-up equivalent of Pokemon cards, you know? Yeah. Right, Absolutely. Yeah, um, I've, I've definitely had to be very careful um, with hobbies in general, just because hobbies are like collecting as an adult is a lot more expensive. Well, watches are at least uh, are, are smaller and so are pens. So yeah. I think you're, yeah. yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> like like I, I, I heard someone tell me, um, you know, living in New York City that the ultimate collectible really is cars because they take up so much space and so much maintenance. Like it's, it's, it's like the ultimate luxury to have multiple cars in the city. I have to, I have to imagine. Yeah, no, my friend who lives in Queens, she was just telling me about, about her cousin who paid literally a million dollars for a parking spot, <laughs> which is insane to me. That's cost like more than like any car that someone would reasonably drive aside from like the super exotic sports cars but yeah. yeah land is an ultimate premium there having a car is is quite like a big deal i have like i know two people uh among like all the years i've been here that have owned a car <laughs> no, that's wild um well if you ever need a parking space my you know i have a two-car garage so <laughs> wow what a flex <laughs> but in north carolina it's not not a flex <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, do you believe in, in love at first sight with objects? Yeah, actually. <laughs> I, I think from a very young age, I had like those, those moments, um, where you just see something and it looks amazing. Um, I remember the first time I saw like an Ibo dog, mm. uh, which is like the Sony robot dogs. I, I was just... I, I know exactly what loud. you're talking about. They have great, yeah. clean, rounded lines to them. Yeah, they 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 really much do. And like I, I for years wanted one. Um, I actually got one of the the newer generation ones finally, um, and he's in my living room. It's it's really fun. Uh, 
But yeah, I definitely, especially for the watches that I treasure to this day, especially like the Shinbun, as we were talking about earlier, I very much had that love at first sight sort of feeling. And mm. I've like learned over time to sort of only uh, end up acquiring things that you really like have a very strong attachment to uh, because after seeing so many things, you end up liking how a lot of things look. Uh, but those feelings generally fade over time. Um, but I think those singular, like really intense, uh, love moments, uh, are what sort of keeps those things valuable to your heart. Sure. And, you know, and, and when you have that strong, immediate response, I think, yeah, you, you do remember that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. it, I'll, I'll say with the shun bun for me, it was actually more of a, a slow burn. Really? Um, at first I was, you know, just looking at pictures or renders, I was just like, ah, I was a little dismissive. Um, and then it's just slowly started growing on me. And then, um, it might've been the first time I saw it in person was the day I went to buy it. Actually. I don't think mm. I had I'd held it before then. Um, I can't remember if I actually saw it in person before I bought it, but, um, I, I do love it. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a, a slow burn for me, which is kind of interesting. And now having it, I, you know, and wearing it and interacting with it daily, I have a, a very different and increased uh, appreciation for it. For sure. Yeah. yeah, I guess like, I've also had that feeling um, with the SBGY008. Uh, I saw the renders for it. I saw the promotional photos. And like, I was very obsessed about it. I really loved how it looked. Um, and it's really interesting because I had the opposite reaction in person. Um, when I had it like on my hand, like it didn't feel or look as great as I wanted it to look. Mm. I didn't sort of have that emotional connection, which was a bit shocking because usually it's just like increased. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting how that ends up working, especially with the, the photos you end up seeing online. And their renders. So, um, let's continue talking watches just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but I do want to switch to a lot of stuff, and we have to talk um, New York food scene because that's one of my favorite sure. things to talk about. You know, something I used to joke I collect too is Michelin stars. Um, I, Me I, too. I may have a <laughs> Google sheet where I track all the uh -huh. starred restaurants I've been to. So, um, yeah, it's a sickness. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> In the profile with Grand Seiko, it looked like it showed five Grand Seiko watches. Are all five of those yours? And yeah, all five of those are mine. The, um, the straps look killer on all of them. So I, it looked, I mean, to me that, yeah, that's one person's collection. I didn't know if they were like, you know, staging stuff with your other watches or not. I didn't think so, but I wanted to confirm that. For sure. Yeah, no, those are definitely my watches. The apartment may not be my apartment. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, all of those watches are are mine. And I think each of them like happened at very different points um, in my like watch collecting like story. Um, the first two being like the Shinbun and the Arushi one, SBGK 003. 002, I think. 002, 002. Um, sort of being like one of the first ones I ever collected but the other ones sort of just 
developing over time, like getting to watch that brand sort of mature and like change their design sensibilities for the U.S. markets. It's really interesting. Um, but I, I like, I like sort of having a bunch of things that have a variety of looks and like different characteristics. Cause it's just your mood changes, <laughs> like the things you dress in change. Uh, and it's nice to have something that sort of can go with things in different points of your time. Absolutely. I think it's a, a really varied collection. And I mean, and tell me about your watch journey maybe before you discovered Grand Seiko. Was there much of one? Um, not really. Uh, I had a bunch of, so I sort of separate out like the part where I sort of started collecting um, with me liking watches. I think for a long time, I've always liked watches, but I've always like purchased watches just because they looked really nice. Um, and I didn't really care about like the other features. Uh, when I went to Switzerland with my husband, I ended up purchasing like a mundane uh, watch, which they, they make strong the design clocks. though. Yeah. Yeah. Strong design. And I feel like they have one uh, movement, which is really cool. Um, the one where it sort of like stops at the three seconds before the minute starts. Oh yeah, and then I starts do know again. that. Yeah, that is cool. That is such a cool thing. Wow. Yeah, but at that point of time, I very much purchased watches and liked watches purely because of how the dial looked. Um, and I think once I started really collecting watches, uh, and I think it's definitely because of Grand Seiko, I sort of appreciating the other aspects. Um, yeah, because I mean, I like that SBGK002 we mentioned with mm -hmm. the Urushi dial. Like, that is a watch most people would end a very long watch journey <laughs> with. And it's like right. you almost started, like, you almost have no exactly. place to go, Olivia, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I just collect countries. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a gorgeous I... watch. And then, I mean, you obviously have a great eye because then I think of. Um, the other two, I think, that are in your collection, like you have one of the Gen B greens, um, that mm -hmm. manual wine at 37 millimeter, and that was an LE. And then it looked like maybe you had an SBGX uh, 346, which is a little um, 34 millimeter rose gold. Right. And that's also a limited edition. So you've been able to also, I think, um, keep your, it's, it's at least from an outsider, it looks like you're keeping your ear to the ground and, and finding out some really nice kind of hidden references. Yeah, definitely. I think I obsessively like read Hodinkee and like the other blog, the other blogs. Um, and I spent so much time like researching like the really old Grand Seiko calibers as well. Um, I remember there's like one website that has like all of the old catalogs. Mm. Uh, it's like really fun to sort of flip through those. Uh, but yeah, I there's just so many interesting features like the SBGX, like I love that coin edge around mm, the dial. Yeah, like it's just it's just so cool and so unique and something I hadn't seen Grand Seiko really do before. So I knew I like had to do that. And I really love green in general, so I really needed to have that green dial as well. Yeah, I I, I haven't seen any of those Ellies in uh, in person. The the Jinbi greens mm. and but the, the the photos they just look amazing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I ended up replacing the green with the that 
uh, tobacco color strap with uh, a taupe sort of looking strap. Oh, cool. Because this one was a, a prototype unit at the time, like it hadn't come out when the photos were taken. So oh, wow. they sent me one of the prototypes. But yeah, I think the taupe really looks well with it as well. Um, one thing I don't like so much with leather is just like the classic like chocolate brown. Um, it, it's a bit too boring uh, for the watches, at least like based on the things I wear, uh, it sort of doesn't really coordinate well. So yeah, I, I like taupe very much though. It <laughs> goes really well with it. Me too. And uh, yeah, I've definitely drooled over some of the taupe straps that Houdinki's had on their shop from time to time. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I think they do taupe really well. Yeah. I love the website, uh, plus nine time where they yes. have that little engine where you can search on size or dial color or, or caliber. I use that all the time. And matter of fact, that's how I found, um, that, um, pink doll watch, um, that I, I bought for my wife, um, a little while ago that you had mentioned you had maybe searched for the STGR 207, which no one knows about that watch. I mm -hmm. think you and I are the only two people in the United States who do. <laughs> like I've even shown it to like the people at Grand Seiko US and they're like, this is awesome. I've never seen this before in my life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I actually recently went to the boutique and I was showing them that and I, they said they would try and look for it. I, I have a feeling that it's probably not going to happen and I'll have to end up looking for some private listings. But yeah, I, man, that is like such an interesting dial, um, for multiple reasons with the guilloche and the pink and the size. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a really cool watch. Um, both the 207 and the 007 are really interesting because I think those only vary with the double Seikos. Oh yeah. Um, versus just a singular like Grand Seiko, like prior to them becoming a separate business from Seiko proper. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there's just something so clean about a dial where there's no date or power reserve. It's just time only. I feel you on that. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really think it's the, the purest expression of a watch, uh, one might say. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's because the, power reserve has been so controversial on the dial that it is I do love though that Grand Seiko listens to collectors because now their newer movements still spring drive can still be automatic but there's the power reserves on the back um, mm -hmm. I've owned two Panerai's where the uh, power reserve was on the back and I, I loved that idea because it's like you really only need to look at it when you put the watch on or, or take it off you know to know if you yeah. need to wind it or not yeah no, it's a brilliant idea. I, I'm trying to think if I have any other watches that have it on the back, but no. Um, the other one that I've seen it done very well is I have this cray door uh, that has like a, a rotten finish on it. And they use gold paint sort of as like a partial moon uh, to sort of incorporate the design of the power reserve a little bit better. but. Yeah, I really love the fact that Grand Seiko really cares about the feedback from customers and tries to incorporate in their newer designs. And I'm really glad that they started making the surfaces like they removed the the annoying uh, 
badge on like the exhibition case backs that like blocks your <laughs> yes. eyes. That drove me crazy. Even Jay Pulvert from Houdinki yeah. hates that too. That's actually what held him back from getting, I think, a shun bun for a long time. But I think he finally got over it because I know he has mm-hmm. one now too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That stuff. It, it's crazy. Like, why would you make it clear and then put it on? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I understand it's one of those decisions I'm, I guess was probably done from a historical perspective they're like oh it's a nod to the the gold disc we would put on the case back but it's one of those things where when you switch to a transparent case back like you have to lose that that historic design element because it just doesn't work right. but they decided to figure out a way to carry it forward so yeah yeah it's pretty, absolutely yeah I, I totally agree with you though I, I, I've thought about like figuring out how to sc- scratch it off of mine <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sure yeah. it's just silk screened on there on the inside maybe I could um, I do some watch repairs. Like I could take the case back off and probably, Ooh. but I don't know. Yeah. It seems like a travesty to do that. <laughs> yeah. I would feel really bad about doing that, but I am, I was also a little curious, uh, to sort of figure out how to take it off. I'm not sure if you went to the, the GS nine event in New York, were you, were you around? There? I didn't, but since I'm part of at least the, the club, I've been watching the sessions right. online as they, as they released them. Yeah. Were, were you there in person? Yeah, I'm, I'm super close to that. Uh, it was in Columbus Circle. So oh, nice. it was only like a like a 10 minute walk for me, which is really lucky. But it was it was such a fun atmosphere. And like, you you really got the sense that like Grand Seiko had really cares, I think about their collectors and like the people that really love the brand so much. Um, just even having like those videos with the the caliber assemblies, I think I've, I've watched that multiple times because it's just so interesting to me. Oh, uh, it gets you such a, a deeper appreciation for Grand Seiko. I remember, yeah, I watched the one about the, I think the white birch and I was just like, oh, now I need a white birch, you know? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I was telling my friend that now I need to get one of the 9RAs and the 9S, uh, the new ones, because mm. I think those are just such interesting new designs and like it would be a travesty if i didn't have anything with it in it's funny you say that i'm kind of approaching my grand seiko collection the same way where i kind of want one of like every movement so like i really want a manual wine spring drive like what's in your um you know that sbgy 007 and and i have one of the nine f quartz because it's like i you know grand seiko makes such a great quartz movement um so yeah, and I need a high beat now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The high beats are cool. I really want to get a high beat as well. And, um, and it seemed like at the um, at the the GS9 event, like the speakers were great. Like like Jeremy Kirkland. Yeah. I love the Blamo podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Theo and Harris were there too. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, and then continuing on watches, just for a second, what um, what other watches are you into out besides uh, Grand Seiko? Mm-hmm. So I have like a, a smattering. I have a lot of Japanese watches. I have a, I recently just got a Minase. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, that one was really cool. Uh, the, the dial ends up being like a one of two. Uh, the other one being, <laughs> I think, the dial, the watch that the president gave to his daughter, <laughs> who I got to meet, like the international president. Wow. Um, and it's just like a lovely champagne 
uh, color. It's just really nice in the light. Uh, and Corona Tokyo mm. uh, is another one that I have. Uh, the Salmon Dial think, or? Um... Uh, I have the Chronograph. Oh, okay. And I also have the Tiffany Blue Dial. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those ones are really cool. Um, it's funny because I, I, I have a lot of watches. And my mind's just going blank right now. I have some Krators. <laughs> I have one Krator, actually. Um, what else? Those are such next level, in my opinion. I, I, I saw one. It was the um, Daiichi 2. At the, oh, and yeah. And it was just, uh, it was just like heart-stopping. Yeah. Yeah. That, that stuff is... It's, it, it's crazy how, how good it looks in real life. Um, like the photos do not do it justice, but it just, that enamel is just amazing. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find a, a white, a really clean white dial watch right now for myself. And I keep thinking right. about trying to find something in enamel maybe, or yeah. Yeah. Enamel would look really nice. I, I have some Cartier watches too. I really like Cartier as a brand. Um, and I really like their design at those and their like history, uh, making watches because they've made watches for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and, I, and to me, they seem to be a bit more accessible or warmer than maybe like Rolex designs, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just, yeah. 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 It's wild. Rolex is a very interesting brand. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, they play their own game. Like I, I feel yeah. like. Um, I'm also really into like hi-fi and, and there it's interesting. Like, um, the industry would kind of joke that like Bose spends more on marketing than all other (laughs) like audio brands combined, um, for, for a while, at least probably in the nineties and two thousands they did. I don't, I think they've kind of dropped off and I feel like Rolex is kind of that way too. Like they probably spend more on marketing and ads than every other watch brand combined. Yeah. 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 That reminds me. I, I had a brief stab in like the audio world as well, but I think as things started getting more into the tonality and like the warmth and coldness of the drivers, uh, I just couldn't take it anymore <laughs> just cause I, I'm, I'm playing a, I'm playing a bet with myself that hopefully my ears degrade to the point where I'll be able to listen uh, with poorer sounding drivers. <laughs> and then I won't have to worry about like the specific audio, the electricity variance and the amount of noise in the cables that you end up using. Like that stuff is crazy to me. It, I, I'm totally right there with you. I, you know, the amount I spent for a new plinth for my uh, Lynn Sondic LP12 is, you know, mm-hmm. more than people's whole stereos. And there's just a piece of wood, yeah. you know, it's a wooden box. <laughs> but I'm like, no, it's made by this one guy in Idaho and it's Coca Bolo. Right? And it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing, you know, like people don't, they don't understand, you know. And the turntable itself is from like 1982. So it, it really makes no sense. But, um, that's awesome though that's it, awesome but you build a relationship with something then that way too is mm-hmm. you kind of make it your own which is a lot of fun just just like you adding your straps to those watches you're you're making them your right. own yeah. right 
And uh, before before this ends, you need to tell me about what your watch case story because I'm very curious because I'm finding it very frustrating to find watch boxes or watch cases. Oh yeah, you know I'm going to yeah. probably do a one hour monologue episode about Fantastic. that, but but I can definitely sh- shoot you uh, some some things like uh-huh. I I'm really against watch rolls is kind yeah. of one of my shticks because I and I have a couple and I've lived with them. And I just see all of these faults with them. Like they don't lay open. You kind of, the, the, when you are removing a watch, it almost always bangs against the flaps. And if you want the one in the middle, you got to take one of the ones from the out. Like it's a really poor design. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad that some companies are now making like zippered cases, which I think makes more sense where you could hold two or four or, or more watches. So, um, and I'm one of the leaders for Red Bar Raleigh. And, um, so I'm going to watch meetups every month. So I needed something with a handle and I only wanted to bring a, a subset of my collection, like, you know, six watches, but I needed also a little case thing that if I wanted to bring an extra strap for someone or a, you know, a, a UV flashlight or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. or a place to hold a business card I get from someone. So I, I have a little storage thing in my watch box as well. They Bosphorus leather made for me. Yeah. Ah, awesome. Yeah, totally, totally bespoke. (laughs) I was just looking at uh, potentially trying to convince them to to make one of the cream uh, leather trunks. Because I think their stuff just looks amazing. It's great. It really is. I I was um, pleasantly surprised. They're super easy to work with. Um, English is not their strong suit. So I I actually (laughs) took like (laughs) pictures of like four or five of their cases and Photoshop them together to show them like a visual of what I had in my mind. And then that, that worked really well. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. You'll have to show me photos later. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's, let's pivot a little bit and let's, because I want to be very cognizant of time. We're we're, we're almost already over and this has been so much fun, Olivia. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, keyboards, let's, talk keyboards i need to up my keyboard game and i have to tell you i've been circling like a shark around the peripheral like i get the nerd ateliers emails and like the the zambumon you know oh zambumon he's a close (laughs) friend i love zambumon and i see all the stuff but it seems so droppy in my name you know in Mm -hmm. nature like everything's done in drops and you gotta like you gotta jump on it i'm just like I'm overwhelmed, and so I'm just like, I'm out, but I'm not happy with my keyboard game. I have two computers in front of me, my work computer and my personal computer. My personal's a a Mac, and my my work computer's just an IBM ThinkPad, and I'm using keyboards with both, and I, you know, they have, like, number pads, which takes up too much space. I want, like, a keyboard without a number pad, but I love the idea of, like, some of these keycap sets, like the Nautilus one. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. It is such like an awesome concept and, and just an awesome execution on that vision. How did you find this world and how did you get into it? Um, it's interesting because like similarly to to watches, I sort of circled around for a little bit and I picked up like a couple uh, cool looking keyboards just because one of them, I think, is called the HHKB, which is a very old school keyboard made in like the 80s or 90s uh, by this Japanese professor. Um, it's like very small, very compact, 
but it was called like the ultimate programmers uh, keyboard. And I was very bought into that advertisement. So I tried <laughs> it out and I used it for the extent of my startup years. So it was a really great keyboard. Um, but to whatever end, when I was starting a new job and I was, I guess, looking for fun ways to decorate my desk, like I fell back into that and I realized, wow, not only like are these like really cool shapes, but there's like individuals and like these random people across the world just designing these keyboards and making like 10 or a hundred of them and then just selling it to people for like barely above margin. Um, and just because they want to have it like created and made. It seems like um, a real labor of love. It very much is a huge labor of love. Uh, at least, at least based on the people I've talked to, uh, I think it's starting to change because a lot more people are starting to learn about it. Uh, but in 2017, uh, which is when I started looking at it, it was very much, uh, these small pockets. I think China was one pocket, Korea was another, um, and then pretty much America and Europe, uh, were the other sort of group. Uh, and it was like a very small community and probably like less than a thousand people at that time. Uh, and everyone just like knew everyone. So it was, it was really fun because you just sort of felt like you were joining like, uh, this space of super like-minded people and you build relationships and make friends. And at the same time, like you get to encourage each other to like make cool new things and you get to support them by buying their keyboards and keycaps. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really fun, fun space. What's your keyboard count up to? Oh man, I used to, <laughs> and I'm thinking of you I living think... in New York city in an apartment. I'm like, how you must have the most accommodating husband. <laughs> or does he share all these passions too? He unfortunately does not share any of these passions. <laughs> I have two storage lockers. Um, and a lot of it is just containing keyboards. I think the last time I counted, it was over a hundred, which is just <laughs> insane. I love it. I love it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I had a, a brief spree because like, for what it's worth, like you end up purchasing like these really nice things and like the designs are so unique and diverse. Uh, that at least in the beginning, like when everything is cheap enough, you end up getting to like try a bunch of stuff and you want to like see how it looks in real life. So you end up joining this group by, and because they're all like a year later or six months later, it doesn't feel like you're actually bringing these things into your house until one day, like UPS just drops 10 off at your door <laughs> and you can't even fit it through your door. <laughs> yeah. But very much like to your, what you were saying earlier, like, I think it's a huge problem um, that we just don't have enough options to sort of yeah. serve the service of people that want to have something nice, that they don't want to wait a long period of time and they are overwhelmed by all the choices. Yeah, sometimes you just want to be casual or like, I don't want to subscribe to an email and wait a year for the right. next, for that <laughs> drop that speaks to me. Like nothing's ever in stock. Like, mm -hmm. and then even finding like, and it seems like, you know, I can appreciate it a little bit in that it's almost like um, airplanes. Like um, when you buy an airplane, if you're like a, a, you know, Delta, like you, you pick Airbus or you pick 
uh, Boeing, but then like the engines are all separate. Um, you can go mm. GE or Rolls Royce or Pratt and Whitney. And I feel like keyboards is kind of the same thing. You like you have to first get the board, and then maybe you need the housing, and then you need the the keycap set. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot to digest. Yeah, it definitely is, and I think the more established players in that space are trying to come up with more integrated solutions. It's just surprisingly, it's very complicated. I think to work with a bunch of factories, produce things of a certain caliber, and then also figure out the logistics of having another factory just assemble it all together and then ship it mm. um, and sort of have that that quality bar. Because like people, people in this hobby are used to like producing like 100 to 1,000 of something. Um, and at that kind of price, you don't really uh, get to sort of subsidize your assembly fees as well. Um, but yeah, it's just slowly changing. Um, a little bit slower than I than I hope. But I've also talked with, I'm not sure, because you mentioned the keyword atelier, if that's Norbauer, like he yeah, has a, Ryan a eventual goal. Yeah, Ryan is a, is a character, like he and I have often talked about, like I think his eventual dream is to have that solution where he's able to offer like these products that are in stock and have everything like already ready for you. Well, I will be his first customer when that, that day mm -hmm. comes for sure. So, um, yeah, I, his stuff is really cool. I love what he's doing. Yeah. And I, I'd like, you know, especially coming from the, like the world of watches, like I, I appreciate metal and, you know, whether it's billet or, you know, the different finishes he's doing on, on things. So, um, mm -hmm. I, I totally love all of that. Um, do you feel like, is there an end point with any of your collections where you feel like you've, you've made it with a particular uh, collection? I, so I think for pens, I sort of stopped after a period of time. And I think it was probably because I was able to track down this super rare pen. And after I got it, it was, it was like my grail pen. Um, and I think that was the closest to me, like just stopping. The mm -hmm. collection did it live up um, to the hype you had put in your mind about it i think so but at the same time i barely used it after i got it right um so i don't know it it definitely was as beautiful as i expected it to look um it was amazing but at the same time like it was also so old that i didn't want to use it too much Mm -hmm. um, where you end up damaging it because like it's an older product and it's like degraded over time. Um, but after that, I think also just because I was a bit frustrated, uh, how long things take to come out. Uh, I could imagine that if I had unlimited disposal income, I could probably end up getting like what I consider grail pieces, uh, in watches. And then I'd probably stop for a little bit just because that development cycle takes a long time as well. Yeah. But I can't Im imagine ever like really stopping the collection aspect. With uh, watches or in general? With, with anything in general. Because yeah. like there's always something new that's going to sort of strike your heart. Mm -hmm. um, and like until you until your tastes really change for like what brought you in, uh, it's hard to get out. <laughs> Now, I know people are going to ask. Is this closet you? <laughs> now, I'm not a pen person, but I know people are going to uh -huh. ask me, so what was your grail pen? 
Okay, uh, so it's called the Namiki Nightline. Uh, Namiki as an N-A-M-I-K-I, and then Nightline. And it basically is a rotten piece, which means that they overlaid abalone shells, Mm. uh, a bunch of strips like in a certain pattern, uh, and also decorated it uh, by hand with some gold dust. And because of that, it just has this really like mesmerizing look and the way it plays in light also is just fantastic. But it was too costly for that company, uh, Namiki, uh, to sort of make on a continuous basis. So they swapped over to a more simple design uh, that they call, I think, the the Yukari Makie Moonlight. Uh, and that looks nice as well. It has like similar elements of that overlaid abalone uh, shapes. But it's a compromise. But it's a compromise. You know, it's not as good. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, it took me like literal years to track it down. Like I was trying to find it in auctions. Mm-hmm. I was like looking for like collectors across the world. And there was one guy in France trying to like sell it to me for four times the price or something ridiculous. Oh, wow. Um, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to, to, to find yeah. one. And it sounds like that was a nice book into that kind it was, of passion. Yeah, it was, it's really nice. It was really nice to sort of hit that concrete end where you feel satisfied. Um, at that time, like there are like a couple American creators of people that for their business, they just make like these custom commissioned pens mm-hmm. where you can describe like the materials you want, like, um, like the nib shape, uh, sort of like the length, how hard you want to be able to have to press it for the ink to come out. Um, all of these features, uh, where you basically end up getting to design your own pen and just have it created by this one person. But the waiting lists are usually like six months to, to years. Uh, for that to happen so aside from those people i think it was it was pretty complete after i got that (laughs) i i do love a good pen but mine are all very utilitarian but i love like the tactile turn ones i do like ones that are made like in america at a machine shop by some guy who's just doing it on the side or in the evenings um i'm using a, a rot ring right now but um you know the times i've had uh fountain pens they just I don't know. I could never, I'm a, I'm a rollerball guy. I hate to admit it. That's probably yeah. blasphemy, but yeah. <laughs> I feel you on that. I, I've swapped sometimes to using rollerballs. I must admit, <laughs> uh, just because it's so convenient and then fountain pens dry up and it's just, yeah. Annoying. And I don't push down oh, hard, okay. so I need something that just, it just flows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely. So besides collecting, what, what excites you right now? Um, what excite me? I think the designing aspect of keyboards uh, really is exciting to me. I've done multiple sets. I just ran like a keycap set called Olive, and that was a huge blast in December. Uh, and now I'm sort of having to think about what's next uh, and like what kind of things I want to do. I have a couple of friends that want to work together on a keyboard design. So I'm considering that, uh, it, it occupies a lot of my, uh, my off time. I think my brain power, 
Uh, yeah, well, it's a great because, creative outlet too, right? Yeah, it's an amazing creative outlet. I can't think of too many hobbies where like the barrier to entry is so low. Um, like to be honest, at some point I would love to be able to like create a watch, but to create a watch, you basically need to invest like at least five years, maybe, mm -hmm. um, unless you want to sort of do a half measure. Right. Uh, and like go like yeah. the micro brand route or something. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I've been able to sort of jump into it and after having like so many friends that I made over time with it, uh, it's definitely like this really awesome place to be creative and actually have things that you imagine come into reality. Um, that's, that's really great. I, I, you know, I think about the collecting I'm doing, you know, this almost goes to the food thing too, that, you know, that the downside with collecting or if you're a foodie is, you know, there's such like passive things, right? We get mm -hmm. excited about them, we research them, but I'm not the one, you know, making the amuse-bouche or the right. tasting menu, right? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a, a passive participant sitting in the, the chair, mm -hmm. poning up to the bar, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But not that those, you know, they, they still make wonderful experiences, but with like what you're doing with um, keyboards, I mean, that's like something that's then, like people are gonna be using that in their homes, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it definitely adds another dimension uh, to it. And I think sort of getting to remove that, uh, that feeling like, oh, I just need to wait until the person, some random person makes the thing that I really want. And I think to a certain extent, you've done it as well, right? With your custom designed uh, wash case, you yeah. are able to, to get what you visualized and have it made into reality. And I feel like that must have been a very rewarding process. Uh, really great feeling. Um, but yeah, being more in control of your destiny in that way just is like really awesome. Uh, and it sort of makes you appreciate, I think, watches or keyboards or uh, just like box building <laughs> a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, t tell me, what's, what's your pet peeves? Uh, when it comes to watches or just uh, in general? In, in general. Uh, okay, my pet peeves is when people <sighs> don't put enough effort into something when you can tell that someone uh, half sort of it. made a half-assed it or put a lackluster effort um and doesn't care enough i've experienced that a lot in my earlier career as a software engineer you end up like looking at a lot of people's code and <laughs> it becomes quite evident, the people that care and the people that don't care. And like, as you mature, you understand that there's a bunch of factors that go into that as well. But I would imagine like, especially like restaurants, uh, when the people just don't really care or like, it's like so badly designed or like, there's no, I think, uh, syn not synthesis, uh, but there's no like, underlying message to things mm. when it's just so discombobulated and it's just like they're just falling the height with, on the with dishes yeah. or something yeah that that lack of intention and thought uh is a pet peeve of mine <laughs> it's like because wow, it's just look. really hard to appreciate those things right <laughs> it's like wow look you you did foam on every dish you must really right. be on that 
you know, trained. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or you like added like liquid nitrogen to every dish. Good, right. good job. <laughs> or you put caviar on everything. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sp speaking of food real fast, what, what yeah. are those uh, restaurants that you, you really, you really love? Oh man. Uh, so in San Francisco, actually, I'm going to be flying next month just to go to this one restaurant in San Francisco. It's called Atelier Crenn. Oh yeah. Uh, Dominique Crenn's place. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Dominique Crenn. She's, she's like a personal, like inspirational model to me, like being able to succeed in that kind of industry, uh, and sort of having, she's very much the epitome of having a unique take and then just sharing it and having people appreciate that. Uh, like even listen to her menu, like she writes like all the poems, um, which represent the menu, uh, for those things. And inside her restaurant, like she actually has like paintings that she, she drew, uh, for those things. But when you enter the restaurant, I'm not sure if you've been there, no. uh, but even the way the tables are situated and the chairs are situated, regardless of where you sit, you end up actually being able to see something. Uh, that's not boring or see something like that's not just like a blank wall, you know, or like the side of a shelf. Uh, it feels very deliberate, I love uh, that. every detail. And like that really appeals uh, to me. So that's by far my favorite restaurant ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that intentionality, right? That attention yeah. to detail when it's done right. And not just with like, service but just with yeah the layout of a restaurant or the lighting yeah you know there's that famous story of um, thomas keller and he was seeing women put their handbags on the floor and so he hired mm -hmm. a carpenter to build these little built-in hooks that would swivel out from the, the yeah. arms of the chairs at um, french laundry yeah right absolutely <laughs> i didn't know about that story that's awesome yeah but yeah thomas keller is like he does really cool stuff too um I know that I recently went to, it's called, uh, what, Chef's Table at uh, Brooklyn Fair. Oh, yeah. Recently. That was such a hard reservation to get, but. That, uh, traditionally, it's I've one of the hardest it. in the city to get. I've, I've never been it able to get a, the a res there. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially if you want the original location, it's like it seats yeah. like, you know, less than 10 people or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pain in the butt, but. Yeah, in a similar way, like the creative vision of the food is super cool. I really love it. Um, well, it's hot. Mm -hmm. one of the few foodie uh, related or restaurant related um, pictures on your Instagram is of the yeah. napkin at Alenia. <laughs> I, I got to yeah. eat there a couple years back. Um, and, you know, Grant's a, such a cool guy. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was a fun experience. What did you think? No, I went for my brother-in-law's uh, wedding celebration, like, uh, dinner thing, uh, just because he wanted to try somewhere really nice. And he was in Chicago. He wanted to, like, make that his, like, honeymoon in a way. Uh, but getting to go to Alenia, I think, had long been something I was really excited for. Uh, for a while now, until COVID hit, uh, Alenia actually had a cocktail bar, two cocktail bars in New York mm. that I used to go to with regular frequency called Aviary and The Office. And the stuff that they make there is so creative, like the cocktails. Um, it's just a different, 
I think, level uh, of intentionality and creativity there. So I was really excited uh, at that to, to go to Alinea and like, it definitely did not disappoint. <laughs> Everything there was really great. When I think of like great cocktails or I think of those restaurants that are just like a couple steps ahead, you can just like, you can, even as a diner, like you can just tell like this, yeah. they're just forging a new path, right? And everyone else is just going to try to follow them. Did you ever um, eat at WD-50 before it closed? Man, I always wanted to. That's one of my biggest regrets. Have you? Yeah, and um, oh. that that was that was great. It, you know, the funny thing is, um, I used to go to New York once a year just to like eat out and then do watch stuff, and I, and I'd be mm -hmm. by myself. And it's and same with when I was in San Francisco, and like I can remember being at um, Daniel Patterson's place, Qua, by myself. And it's funny because you would get great service though, because they knew like, I'm not trying to impress a date or someone. I'm just there right. for the food. And, uh, I remember like he didn't come out to anyone's table, but he came out to my table three times with dishes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Cause I think they also think you're a critic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're dying alone. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so it is really, I get amazing service and at WD 50, I remember I, I dined there solo and had great service in the, table next to me were like two lobbyists and I ended up chatting them up. We were friends on Facebook then for like five years after. Oh, nice. pretty, pretty funny how things That's like awesome that work. That's awesome story. But yeah, you could just tell they were a step ahead even when I was there. Um, yeah. 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 If you ever make it to New York, we should grab food sometime, I'm sure. Absolutely. Among us, we can have some good picks. What is your, now taking away Michelin stars for a second, maybe what uh -huh. is your more go-to when you just want um, a fun, casual meal in the city? A fun, casual meal in the city. Uh, I think it's definitely changed with COVID, um, but there's yeah, a place called Golden Unicorn in Chinatown, which does dim sum. Mm. Uh, it's been around forever, for like decades and decades, but one of the things I really miss about Toronto is they have very, very good dim sum. Uh, and in New York, it's okay. Uh, but this place is the best of the okay, I would say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's very much like getting to eat dim sum requires like a large group of people uh, to sort of be there to eat because it's just a lot of like small plates, like tapas. Yeah. Uh, and you can't really try lots of things unless you have a lot of people. So it's naturally a very social affair um, and something really fun. And it's also very cheap. So it's something that people don't have to get all dressed up to and they don't have to like plan things in advance. They can just uh, decide one Friday that we're just going to meet tomorrow at this restaurant. So yeah, that I think is like one of my favorite kind of comfort things to do. Do they do the little carts and everything? Yes, they they do the little From carts table to table, and yeah. yeah, sometimes I have to like run after the people because they forget or they skip our place and it's it's always a bit annoying, but a bit fun <laughs> as well. It's part of the experience. I totally feel like uh, they try to like pawn off like the worst dishes. I know, first. right? <laughs> when you first get there, it's like you have to like check your hunger and be like, no, 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 the good stuff's going to come. Wait for like the the you know the the barbecue buns don't exactly yeah don't go for the edamame exactly. or whatever yeah no. uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. My uh, my favorite place I heard disclosed maybe um, Mission Chinese food, but I used to love yeah. going there. And I heard I think they still have their location in, in Brooklyn, but I used to always go to the one on the I guess it was like Lower East Side. Lower East Side, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Oh, I love that place. Yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah. I went to one of their like I think special dinner things, dinner events that they organized. I remember you had to pick up the ticket, right? And it wasn't like the most like sketchy looking little like dinky <laughs> like walk up apartment. And like you literally like knocked on like an apartment door and someone just slips the paper. <laughs> <laughs> but the food was amazing. I was so full. My goodness. Oh, but yeah, I love Mission Chinese. Me um, too. That place is so creative and so cool. Oh, they had this cocktail called a Phil Collins. That I just loved. Yeah. Mm. But... Wow. Um, I've, you've, I've totally stopped looking at any of my questions I have for <laughs> Olivia because this has been just so much fun. Um, you know, and I we're well over time, but this is, has been just so great. Oh, I will ask um, maybe two closing questions, if that's sure. all right. Um, Absolutely. Just, you know, again, um, uh, what, what's the next place on your travel bucket list? Uh, you, you mentioned Japan. Uh -huh. I assume that's yeah. it or is something else? Yeah. Japan probably is it. I think mm -hmm. after getting to learn so much about Grand Seiko, I'd be remiss if I didn't visit Shizukuishi mm. uh, and getting to actually go to that like beautiful building that they have oh, and yeah. getting to like watch the watchmakers actually do those things. Um, I have this huge list of restaurants uh, that I need to book whenever I actually book my tickets as well that I really want to try. So yeah, Japan definitely, I think, is at the forefront of places on my bucket list. Excellent. And the, what's the, where can I get the best cup of coffee or cappuccino in the city right now? In the city? Um, I would say it's probably Everyman Espresso. Okay. Uh, yep. They have two locations. I think one is in Chinatown. Um, where is the other one? The other one's in East Village on 15th Street uh, in between 6 and 5. Cool. Six and fifth, yeah. Anything you want to promote? Anything you want to plug? Uh, nope, nope. I think uh, the only thing I'd want to promote is this awesome show, but I think people listening have already sort of bought into that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, I, you know, for our inaugural uh, interview, this this has been absolutely great. If people want to follow along, any um, mm -hmm. social media handles they should be aware of? Uh, yeah, my Instagram is at of breaks um i barely post pictures um but i think i need to start doing that to be honest um and yeah i i don't really have too much of a social presence i'm a bit <laughs> of uh rec recluse um in general but yeah awesome well again thank you so much absolutely no this was so much fun I hope you enjoyed this chat with Olivia Briggs. If you know a fellow incurable collector that we should interview in a future episode, please drop me a line via Instagram at the grumpy collector. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. It's a great way to ensure others learn about the show until next time. Bye-bye.